Hello, this is Robert Riggs. Before I start this episode, this is a message to fans in Australia and New Zealand. As of September 30th, the True Crime Reporter podcast will no longer be available on the Listener app. I know from your emails how much of you enjoy my stories, so please keep listening by following the True Crime Reporter on Apple, Spotify, and the many other apps where you can listen. You can also go to the truecrimereporter.com slash follow website to pick your preferred podcast app. We're developing new stories that I think you will really enjoy. Now, here's today's episode. Society captivated by dark intricacies of true crime, we find ourselves glued to our screens, dissecting each plot point and devouring the suspense. It's all as if we're turned into, you know, amateur detectives, piecing together clues and predicting outcomes as these harrowing, Uh, real-life stories unfold before our eyes. In this week's episode of True Crime Reporter, Michael Jackson, the host of the A Funny Way of Looking podcast, interviews me about the age-old appeal of crime stories. Michael's podcast aims to educate in a fun environment, enlighten, entertain, and inspire his listeners. Here's Michael Jackson's interview with me, on the A Funny Way of Looking podcast. We're going to start out the good way. Who do you want to do a shout out to? You know, I, I want to shout out to the men and women from law enforcement that are in my television documentary called Free to Kill about serial killer Kenneth McDuff, one of the most uh, notorious serial killers in in the U.S. that you've probably never heard of. I have not, but I'm sure I will now. And if they had not really gone all in, we there would have been so many more women murdered. We'll never know how many women he abducted and murdered. Mm. But thankfully, for their hard work, tenaciousness, and not giving up, they got him off the streets eventually. And then... Yeah, I had a whole expose going on about how he got out of prison. A serial killer got out of prison under a cloud of corruption. Wow. But my sh- and my shout outs to law and you know, the, the the dedicated detectives, Texas Rangers, US Marshals that, you know, and uh, investigators and other agencies, ATF, that they don't make a lot of money, but they're what I've seen is they're professional, hardworking, and unfortunately. They're not getting a lot of respect these days. I think that that is a fabulous shout out. And like, maybe we need more of those. So I'm going to, we'll post that. You know what? I may just copy that shout out and post it into the comments after the, after the show. Thank you for that. Thank you. Okay. You know, I want to hit true crime today and I want to do it from a slightly different perspective than uh, a lot of people probably do true crime. I, I, I want to hear about the serial killers and the, in the bank heist and all that. But uh, today we're going to talk about the audience and we're going to talk about the people who are really into true crime also. So let me, let me just set it up and ask you this question. Walk us through why people seem irresistibly drawn to crude crime. I think it's probably a little bit of what draws me. I, you know, I have interviewed every type of conceivable criminal from serial killers, mass killers, uh, serial child molesters, bank robbers, uh, you name it, you name it. And I'm drawn kind of to it. Like what makes them tick? What, and what, and you kind of never really get there, but what makes them tick? What, 
you know, is it nurture or nature? I know in my audience, and my audience is about 70% female, 25 to 54, I know the ladies that listen, they have the same interest, but in a, in a sense of, well, do I know someone like this? You know, yes. do I have a significant other that might be like this? And they also are interested about if I had been a victim, could I have survived? Could I have gotten away? And then I think they also, we always try to offer some of these up of tips for prevention, how to protect yourself. The men, 30% of my audience is men. And what they like about true crime are the procedurals. They want to hear that the bad guy or the bad lady got caught and how, mm -hmm. how did the detectives do this? And that's the, that's the part that really fascinates me is the how the work that went into it, unless you've ever been a member of a jury at a criminal, a major criminal, like a capital murder trial, it's only then you really learn how much effort goes into an investigation and then the prosecution. Yeah, I don't understand it. Every time I turn on something like a Dateline or your podcast and, and start talking about true crime, I'm like sucked in. And I just wonder, like, before they give us the next punchline, can I figure out who it is? Do you think there's like something, I don't know, psychological built in? It, like, I'm surprised really that it's mostly women that watch and listen to your uh, your podcast. Well, yeah, Why I, is I, that? I do think it's something psychological in us that's been in us about survival. I've done some research and I've been trying to gather information and stuff about why to write an article about it, maybe do a podcast episode about it. But I've looked back at Victorian London, and in those days, you had something called the Penny Dreadfuls. They sold for a penny, and they were these sort of scandal sheets of they gave the latest on the you know mm -hmm. crime, big crimes and stuff. But the thing that shocked me, they'd have thirty thousand people show up to witness a public hanging. It's like there's nothing better to do on a Friday night. Let's go watch the hanging. Yeah. So this is this has been with us. You know, and, and of course, murder in our society and culture goes back thousands and thousands of years. You know, there was a kind of a mummified, uh, he was called the Ice Man. I believe he was found in the, buried in the Swiss ice, 10,000 years uh, old. And uh, I've been doing some research on it. And they found he'd been murdered. He'd been shot in the back with an arrow. So what happens today is nothing new. I got to ask you about, like, you report on all of these crimes, right? And so you write the stories, you interview the Correct. victims as well as the uh, actual criminals, and you, you interview, like, the police and all this kind of stuff. When you're telling the stories, is there ever kind of, like, any ethical line that you have to stay behind when you're telling the stories so that it doesn't become, like, exploitive? Or, like, how do you judge that? How do you work that into your, your podcast? I think you have to be very careful, and this is a complaint I've got about many, many true crime podcasts. I want to tell the host, you know, someone died here. Mm -hmm. A family lost a family member. It uh, This affects them for the rest of their lives. So that's where you, you want to walk a fine line that you're not uh, offending um, the, the victim's families. Or if mm -hmm. it's, a, you know, if it's a victim of uh, rape or something and, you know. You just, you got to be careful. So I try to be professional and factual, not sensational, not giggly. There's a lot of them that giggle and they, they have, I like, Oh, fake, you know, stuff like that. Uh, no, just the facts, ma'am. 
you know, what do you think about these? Uh, and this is not true. Well, it might be, might be true crime. You got incidents that are happening instead of people helping. They're actually got their cell phones out filming for, you know, the next YouTube post that they're going to make or TikTok. What do you think about that? Kind of weird. You know, that just seems to be pervasive in our society that everybody with a phone is a voyeur now. Yeah. And, you know, perhaps they need to help uh, render aid, put on a tourniquet or whatever, but they're busy getting that moment. Yeah. And um, I, you know, if you if you go to various tourist spots, it's like everybody is experiencing it through the phone. You know, <laughs> you know, it's like, OK, um, yeah. so, so it's yeah, it, it bothers me. It, it yeah. was like, hey, you know. Yeah, I just I I wanted to hit that. It's like it's like people think, well, I've got to have my moment. This oh god, this is going to be a great social media moment. Might get me more followers, you know. Yeah. How do you approach like sensitivity? And we going back to like you know the rape victim or the family and all that kind of stuff. How do you how do you approach that? Well, I really try to be very professional and factual, and not embellish with adjectives and stuff like that. And I've, I've had episodes with crime victims on, families, mothers of crime victims. And, you know, you want to be sort of soft-spoken with them. And, you know, I, I've got an episode that's very, very popular. And it's by the little girl. She was then a little girl who grew up next door to Ted Kaczynski, the bomber, oh, the Unabomber. Yep. Fascinating story. Fascinating story. Wow. So... I, you know, I can see people could come on and really sensationalize it, but that's, you know, I'm an old school reporter I just, and I just don't believe in doing that. I just look, let me just tell you the, the story as we know it. Have there ever, have there ever been stories that you decided not to do because of like any of the ethical concerns or it might like hurt the people or, or anything like that? Oh yeah. In your career, there's always stuff like that. Now I will tell you as one of the things that bothered me back in reporting is that in television, there'd be some incident, shootings, what have you. And they would send um, uh, reporters to the homes. I, I would never do this to knock on the door of the victim's family to try to get a comment. Uh, right. You know, well, how did it feel and this sort of stuff? Well, here, I mean, here's what I know from doing these. The victims' families are in shock. They're really not of presence of mind, really, to talk. And uh, it's—I just don't think it's ethical Mm-mm. to go to them. Then, if you—if it's going to be a serious story later, the public can learn from. You know, go sit down with them later. But it should be a—you know—what is the public going to learn from this? Well, if it's just that. They're sobbing and weeping and they're sad. Well, we all know that. So you got to be careful about not crossing that line. And that was something I abhorred in the industry. And I would not do it. Would I, not do it. Who was it? Was it Robert Palmer that had that song about, you know, uh, go out and get the next line. Is the head dead yet? And uh, go dirty laundry. That was the name of the, the song. Yeah, you know, that is with the Eagles uh, drummer singer, uh, not Glenn Fry. Um, God, I'm going blank. Yeah, I can't remember. He lives here in Dallas. I really uh, okay. Yeah, dirty laundry. Yeah, dirty laundry. That's this one. <laughs> I think that stemmed from maybe his name will come from me. Um, he was in a 
lawsuit and his, I think his wife was suffering. Um, what was she suffering from lupus? Something, you know, something debilitating. And they mm. called her to testify and just to really just make up Don Henley, Don Henley to make an there issue of it. Yeah, Don Henley. Court and the Eagles, my, one of my, among my favorite bands, Don Henley and, and Glenn Fry. When Glenn Fry passed away, I was like, uh, ooh, this is getting close to home. One side story, there was a, there was a, a Tex-Mex place here in Dallas called Mia's. And it used to be just a hole in the wall. And I, I love going in there. I love the food. And I remember walking in there one day and there was Don Henley and Glenn Fry sitting with caps pulled by down kind of, of, you know, incognito, but talking. And I thought, I wonder if they're writing a song or they're talking about the next thing. And nobody bothered them and stuff. It, and they were, interestingly, they were setting, sitting at the same table where Jerry Jones were reputedly inked the deal to buy the Cowboys. There you go. Yeah. Now Mia's has moved on to a bigger location. They were so popular, but I loved it was that little tiny place and, old school, but you never knew who you'd see in there. You might see Robert Riggs. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So let me, let's keep talking about this, um, the cell phone and being able to just, and not engaging, but just taking pictures. Like how has technology has changed the way that the whole, you know, empathy for people, the ethics for people and everything has changed. Like how has technology changed, you know, just crime in general, true crime. Well, in terms of social media, there's been plenty of written about this, but you know, you have trolls and, mm-hmm. and what have you, and the toxicity of the nasty things, you know, people can be anonymous. My wife is fond of saying now she was in the entertainment business on stage at one point in her career. And, and I, you know, I've asked her like, was this, were these feelings and emotions, were they really always in people? And she said, yeah, I, I think, I think many, many people always wanted to be the star in their own movie, but uh, there was no way they were ever going to get cast because they didn't have t- mm-hmm. talent. Well, now anybody with a cell phone has access to do whatever of look at me, look at me, look at me. Yeah. And frankly, she's a person that was on stage. She hates having her picture taken, doesn't want anything. And even though I was a guy on television, I'm not all that. I'm still kind of an introvert. You know, uh, if you know what I'm saying, you know, no, I'm a total introvert. I yeah. can totally get that. Believe me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that probably sounds weird, but uh, I'm not one to really go. Hey, look what we're doing. So yeah. I'm fascinated about true crime and the availability of information around the world. And I just wonder now you've been doing this for decades. Mm-hmm. Can people literally like get on the internet, do some research, watch the TV shows, listen to the podcast, interview people, and then ever come up with like the perfect crime. Do you think that's, is it possible or is there too much technology on the other side that says, nope, got you before you even got out the door? Well, even when there wasn't the technology, Mm -hmm. you know, it never goes according to plan. Uh, There's, always something hiccup, something like that, something. So I've really never seen that perfect crime uh, in all the stuff I covered. And one of the things I've seen in crimes is that people commit crimes or a murder of a spouse or something, and they stage it 
but they stage it the way they've seen it on television and it does that, that was that it way. and okay. it gives and it gives itself away you know I mean, you see the the Hollywood directors and the writers, and they've all got their uh, their scripts. We've all seen Ocean's Eleven, bank robberies, and stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why is it that people can't get away? Is it because it's too romanticized? It's because it's their first one, and they get messed up. Like, why? Uh, you know, we're so hard. We're all human. We're not perfect. Yeah. And and then there's the other thing of uh, they'll tell somebody, uh, and there's never a secret. Loose lips. Uh, and in the in the in the criminal world, somebody will always flip on somebody. And I'll, I'll give you an example. I did a series years ago with cooperation from the FBI when identity theft was just starting. This was a landmark series. And there was a guy traveling around the country and he really had this perfect scheme for doing counterfeit fraudulent checks coming in, hitting banks and stuff for 300 grand and they would be gone. And when I looked over it, I was thinking, wow, this is, this guy was doing the perfect crime, but he got involved in something, told another guy about it. That guy got busted by the FBI on another charge unrelated. And he, he says to them, let's make a deal. I can tell you about a huge case. And, and, and the FBI had to solve this case, and it was going on all over the country. It was huge. And so there was the mistake, you know. I remember discussing with my father-in-law. I thought, you know, maybe if you just do one or two of these and stop, <laughs> you might get away with it. But they don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You just, if people just have to talk, I guess that's the whole problem right there. Yeah. Well, like, and I have to say, as a reporter, on those kind of financial crimes, you're learning all the details and you're thinking, Hmm. I wonder if I might. <laughs> well, I, I I've wondered that. You know, it's like it, it's almost like you're getting a you're getting a PhD in true crime. You're seeing where all the mistakes are. It sounds like like people talking too much is the biggest mistake. talk about Robert Riggs. We're going to play a game for a second called Mm -hmm. This or That. I'm going to give you two choices. You can pick one or the other, but not neither or both. And if you have to justify anything, yeah, we could do that maybe too. And um, you know what? I'm going to start with super, super, super simple and pedestrian. You're only the third person I have ever asked this question to. And uh, the question is coffee or tea? Coffee. Yeah. Morning or night, do you do it? Morning. Two okay. cups. Morning reporting or night reporting? Reporting? Yeah. Night. Night? Okay. True crime books or true crime documentaries? You know, I don't do either. It's strange because mm-hmm. that's my world. Uh, if, if I'm reading a book, it's history or it's business. Okay. Don't it's it's about things I don't know about. Gotcha. What about paper notes or digital notes? I do a combination. I do paper. I've you mm-hmm. know I've always had the reporter's notebook. But if something is important, I find I need to write it by hand. And there's brain research around this that if you put it down by hand, it sticks in your brain. Yeah. And I, so I will also kind of copy and put things in digital so I can they're searchable. So I'm a blend of both. I, I agree with you about the paper thing. It's just like a feel and a something to paper 
that yeah. you don't get with digital. Yeah. You know? Solo investigation or team investigation? Team. Okay. When you go out, have you ever done the solo or is you mostly team, all team? I was always the uh, the leader of the team. I had a mm-hmm. producers and stuff like that, but they were terrific. You okay. know, it, it, it was just, it had, you just have to work together. Okay. Early in my career, solo, I did solo mm-hmm. stuff, but later as you advance and more complex stories, team. Team. Got it. How about interviewing victims or interviewing law enforcement? I'd rather interview law enforcement how they do. And it's solely because the pain in the victims, the pain. Okay. That goes it back just, to our ethics that, that we were talking well, about. Well, and that, you know, in my free to kill, I've got the victims in there uh-huh. and the families, and they need to be there. The public needs to understand what this does to people. But these are tough interviews because you're bringing back these awful events in their life that still affect them. Yeah. And uh, there was a moment, Colleen Reed's sister, I took her back to the church where they had the service for her sister that was murdered by McDuff. And, you know, like I say, I'll ask open-ended questions, things I don't know the answer to. And I said to her, um, when you're alone at night, what do you and your sister talk about? You know, now her sister's deceased. And boy, did it come out. Because she did have conversations about mm-hmm. the sister she missed. And, and what she described and the anguish, boy, you just, and tears, you, uh, the viewer, really got a, a feel for what suffering is put on these people by violent criminals. And yeah. I thought that was, I, I, I wanted people to understand the consequences, you know, that's, I think it's, a, it's important in this kind of things that they need to hear it. Yeah. Interesting. How about old unsolved cases or recent crimes? Mix of both. It all, it all depends on just how unusual the crime is. Uh-huh. I, I don't do your garden variety stick ups and stuff like that. There's got to be some twist, something unusual, uh, something that is challenging the, uh, the detectives and all. So old would have been McDuff, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I've got one that I did not long ago about, a. A murder in Austin, a love triangle murder by involving these terrifically talented cyclists. And it, it's one of those things like, wow, what happened? Yeah, you, you had everything going for you. How did it get to this? So, yeah. Don't you forget, like, scared that the um, some of these things are going to come back to you and people are going to go like that reporter. I'm just... I'm going to find him or does that ever haunt you? That happened during my uh, investigation of corruption in the system. Uh, when I began exposing that you could buy your way out, well, it ended. And then you had many, many inmates that were upset that I'd blown, I'd blown their chances of getting out. Mm-hmm. So the anger was directed to me there was a time when the U.S. attorney wanted to put U.S. marshals at my home. 
I'd been a staffer on a defense committee in Congress and trained by the Army and every weapon imaginable. I was like, I, I can take care of myself here. So it, the threats do happen. You don't want it affecting, you know, your family and stuff. And I had a case where a uh, public official that eventually went to prison because of my reporting called and uh, threatened my wife, got her on the call, got the phone number. So she just delivered the threat to my wife for me. Now, on the McDuff thing, mm -hmm. all of that went away when he got caught and it came out. And he, he became the poster boy for change and cracking down on the laws. And he was the most hated man in the prison system. He was on death row. I had death row inmates tell me, if they open those doors, we're killing that guy. We're going to kill him. I tear him limb from limb. Wow. So uh, I was like, well, thankfully, they don't think of Robert in this anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. About local crimes or international crimes? God, you know, then it all depends. Mm -hmm. uh, international, there was a point in my career I was doing terrorism, you know, uh, before 9-11. Interesting, before 9-11 and then after 9-11. And that was international. It was in, in London, in the UK, in places. And those were fascinating stories, very different. And then local, it just, you know, there, there are huge corruption cases that are interesting. Uh, you know, it's just not violent crime. It's other kinds of crimes. Yeah. Do you see crimes that are going on and you're like, I wish I could expose this, but you're either too busy or it's too, takes, it would take too long. Like, uh, especially, I'll, I'll even go like, especially in like, say politics, anything like that, where you just wish you could do something more about it. Well, these days, it's, it's just Robert and, you know, some help. I don't have the resources that I had when I was at CBS and places. So I'm not able to do things. I, I, one thing I do do, I've got some uh, volunteers that were in law enforcement, one that was a member of an FBI uh, violent crime squad. I'll ask the person, hey, can I give this information to him and let him look around in it for mm -hmm. you? So, you know, you try the you try the best you can to help. Okay. Gotcha. Serial killers are heist masterminds. Serial killers. Okay. It's just uh, wild. Nature or nurture. Gotcha. How about face to face interviews with criminals or anonymous tip offs? Well, I always prefer face to face interviews. Okay. Yeah, but uh, anonymous tips are can be the bread and butter of an investigative reporter, but you got to go prove it. It can put you on the right track, but you got to go prove it. Gotcha. Okay. How about maintaining professional detachment or getting emotionally involved? You try, and typically reporters, there's, there is a detachment, but when you really get involved, like in this McDuff case and others, where you're talking to the victim's families and you're, Oh my God, you see the grieving going on. It does get to you. Matter, mm -hmm. matter of fact, in that case, it, it got to the law enforcement officers, but it also fueled them like, we got to, we got to solve this. Yeah. And there was a uh, U.S. Marshal named Parnell McNamara. And Parnell today is the sheriff in Waco, McLennan County. And he was present for the confession of McDuff's accomplice about the murder of Colleen Reed. And he told me that driving back to Waco, he started crying. 
and thinking of the horror and everything else. And he said, he said to me, you know, suddenly I wasn't the tough old bird and lawman. I th- maybe I thought I was. Now I want to tell you, this is a tough guy. Seen everything, done everything, old West family and law enforcement in Texas for 120 years. Mm-hmm. And it got to him. Uh, but it also became a driving force for him as well. I'll tell you one of the things that was hard for me. You know, I was an embedded, I did three wars, but I was an embedded reporter in the last one with the lead unit in the invasion of Iraq. Mm-hmm. So before the war began, I lived with them. We were there. I was in the tent, ate with them, tent with them. And so you began having a personal, you knew them. You knew everybody as a person. So it wasn't some anonymous body at a crime scene or accident or something like that. You knew them. Some I did stories with, and then they got killed. That kind of got to all of us in the crew, Mm. you know, because there were people we knew. They'd, you know, so that was rough. You know, I still think about it today. I totally believe that. uh, I got a couple more hard ones, and I want to get to us a couple of thought-provoking questions Mm -hmm. for you. How about legal loopholes that free the guilty or laws that incriminate the innocent? Well, you know, the Innocence Project has done great work about identifying uh, wrongly convicted people. Now, Mm -hmm. DNA has really been a big help in all of that, not only clearing the innocent, but also finding the guilty. Legal loopholes, you know, I don't know that I've ever really seen that the those in cases. You know, okay. look, if if you're a good prosecutor, you ought to be able to do this, you know? Gotcha. Let's go thought provoking for a second. Knowing who committed a crime but not being able to prove it or proving a crime but not knowing who did it. Well, for me the interest is the the crime and not knowing who did it. And so I've been doing a series on cold cases and, you know, now with the use of forensic genetic genealogy, they're solving 40 year old, 40 year old cases now. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, it is amazing. It is amazing. It it brings me back to my question earlier about could someone ever commit the perfect crime or just, Mm. you could keep your mouth shut, not tell anybody, look like a normal guy. Could you get away with it? And it's like, if you forgot to leave your cell phone home one day, you might just get caught. <laughs> well, and so there are these cases where, you know, people have gotten away with murder mm-hmm. and think they've gotten away with it. And now technology has caught up with them. And I've done a, in the podcast, I've got a series about forensic genetic genealogy in cases. One about a serial rapist who, good gosh, he had raped so many women in Texas and then using DNA, they... These are old cases, but now they start applying this and they find out he had victims in Oklahoma and Arkansas and they tracked him down and uh, because they ran it, his uh, DNA that was Mm -hmm. left at crime scenes, they ran it through these social uh, channels where people, you know, are doing search and they found family, people on the family tree. And then the so the detectives had new leads yeah. 
to get to narrow down. And then so they identified him and uh, the FBI and the Dallas prosecutor and police worked on this. They put a hidden camera looking at his home uh, because they were doing why well, I call it dumpster diving. But they in the middle of the night, they were taking things, trash that where you might leave DNA cups, what have you. And the camera was there to prove there were there were no other males going in there. None. So, you know, we all hear about this DNA and everyone just kind of throws it around. But when you talk about they found DNA, is it like the sci-fi level? It's like we found a crumb with his saliva on it? Or is it like you got to find like a whole head of hair? What is it when you find DNA to prove something? How much do you need? And Well, this is-, is the, this is a big revolution in technology. So um, they... For years, like in rapes, for years they've taken the samples, they've got the DNA, and it is set on shelves and stuff. Some never tested. There's a whole government program going on now where they are bringing it out and testing it. Mm-hmm. And one of these victims uh, had heard about uh, this new testing and everything going on. She actually went to the police and got a detective like, hey, have you thought about this? And they went in, they found her evidence stored, refrigerated still to, you know, this is 30 years later. Uh And so now they use forensic genetic genealogy. And the other thing that's happened with DNA testing, there are some labs that can take a minute sample. You can't even see it by the eye. Uh Uh-huh. And, de- and develop it. And uh, in this case, they they ran it then in the uh, genetic websites and got onto the some the, you know the family tree. Mm-hmm. And then they then actually what they go back and they start looking they reviewing their cold case files, and they often find these guys' names are in there. They just never had enough to get to them, or they're overdone. Okay. And so this guy. They put him away for the rest. of He's like 70. They put him away for the rest of his life. Well, and I have an episode about it. It's a fascinating episode. Thank you, Ancestry.com. Well, I, I don't know. Some of them do not participate. I don't think 23andMe will participate with law enforcement. Others do. <laughs> Some of them uh, have it set that you have to, and they don't really tell you it's there. You have to make, make a choice to click that law enforcement can have access but it's, you know, it's the family tree. Yeah, it's out there, right? So I got a couple more for you. How about revealing a source to solve a case or protecting your source at the cost of justice? Well, you know, if the source has committed a crime, I'm not I'm not protecting them. Yeah. Uh, and the there really there really is no such thing as a confidential source anymore in in litigation. Uh, if you have a confidential source, the judge is going to ask you if this story is based on that. Let's hear who they are. The other side has has a right to t- take their deposition and cross examine them. So I didn't have confidential sources. I had sources that would provide tips and stuff like that mm-hmm. to lead me places, but I uh, nothing that would ever say. 
I, they're the, the, you know, because if you get sued, you're going to have to defend every sentence. Yeah. Every sentence. And this is why investigative reporting has really gone away in, in this age that, you know, the newspapers have been financially gutted. Same thing has happened to broadcast news and what's left. They don't really want to spend the money. And the litigation is, is ex- very expensive, very okay. expensive. Last one. Uncover a deeply set, a deeply settling truth that could shake societal faith in the justice system or withhold the information and maintain public order. Oh, no, I'm going to I'm bringing it out. The McDuff case was a case of that where the Texas system had been in trouble with the federal courts for more than 10 years for overcrowding. And the Democrats and the Republicans had run for reelection on law and order, and they were passing tougher laws, longer sentences. The problem is they didn't have any place to put them. And the jails in Texas had backed up. They had serious overcrowding. The sheriffs were mad. And the system was on the verge of getting taken over by a judge. And rather than suffer that political embarrassment controversy, the administration at the time ordered the parole board, who they appointed, let them out. And so one of the things we discovered in the investigation that came out was that they were releasing 140 inmates a day, seven days a week. Jeez. And and when one of the parole board members was really being grilled uh, in a hearing that was based on my story, he suddenly lost it and told the truth and said, uh, well, Senator, we're we're dragging the bottom of the barrel. We're scraping the bottom of the barrel, you know, to make room. Mm-hmm. And boy, that caused an explosion. The legislature didn't even know that was going on. And suddenly it explained there was a there'd been a huge spike in crime around Texas, particularly in in uh, Houston was off the charts. Other place, Central Texas, Fort Worth was bad. Uh-huh. And this was why they're letting you know, the violent of the violent career criminals out. And the first thing they were doing was, you know, like McDuff, the day he walked out of pr- the next day after he walked out of prison, he abducted a woman and killed her and continued on a spree for three years. Jeez. We're going to have to do this again. And uh, I, I'd love to be on your podcast one day and just listen to you, to talk to you some more. This is amazing. Either that or we'll just get together for coffee someday. Coffee sounds great. I'm a coffee. It's got to be early morning. <laughs> I'll get up and do early morning instead of my normal get up at 10. So uh, I definitely want people to be able to still check you out and learn more about you. We've got your website at truecrimereporter.com. And of course, you are all over the uh, internet, interwebs on Facebook and Instagram at True Crime Reporter. And you've got a LinkedIn going at uh, Robert Riggs TV. And for everyone who's not actually watching but listening, Riggs is R-I-G-G-S, so Robert Riggs TV on LinkedIn. And uh, you've got some YouTube going on at Robert Riggs True Crime Reporter. So this has been an absolutely fascinating. And, Michael, you can find the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. We're in Apple, Spotify, everywhere. And if you want to watch, we some we video, and you can actually watch the interview. On YouTube. And YouTube is opening up Google Music to podcasts, so we'll be there soon, too. In closing, I want to thank Michael Jackson and the listeners of A Funny Way of Looking for the Invitation.
Michael's podcast covers a wide gamut of topics ranging from writing books for kids to haunted history, so give it a listen. In the meantime, stay true, stay safe, and stay tuned for more stories from inside the crime scene tape. This is Robert Riggs reporting.